people pick and choose the things that fit their worldview, and they push aside the things that they don't like. And Paul says that there's literally no reason to keep Christianity in your life if you reject the basic teachings of Christianity. Um, and that one of the most basic teachings of Christianity is what Paul's setting out here over this entire chapter to talk about, the resurrection of Jesus. A, what, and Paul would claim this was a historical event. I would claim that this was a historical event. Um, and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a lot of the, uh, the, um, the reasons for believing that. Um, and it's just as important of a doctrine today as it ever was. Resurrection means the same thing for us today as it did back then. A lot of Christians don't even realize the meaning behind the resurrection. We're going to talk about that. Um, around the, if you reject the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus, then all of Christianity really should be thrown out with it. Um, and he says, in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried, uh, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, I've had people come to me and ask me a very valid question, um, and it pertains to things like this. What scriptures is Paul talking about? And a lot of you here would answer, well, the New Testament, and wrong. The New Testament was not even written yet. What is Paul talking about? Where did it say that Jesus was a person, that he was alive, that he was God, that he died and was buried and was raised on the third day? How can Paul make a claim like this? Up to this point, there was no written record at all in any kind of scripture of uh, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. This letter right here, um, 1 Corinthians, was written about 57 A.D., um, just under 25 years after the crucifixion. So this actually is the first written account in human history of the crucifixion of Jesus. Paul already has given us the first, in this book, the first written account of the life of Jesus. All right? This, this predates any of the four Gospels that have been written. All right? This is the very first writing in humanity that Jesus died, was buried, and raised from the dead. All right? Mark is presumably, the Gospel of Mark is the, uh, is the earliest Gospel, and over the last 15 years, actually, the, the book of Mark, um, scraps have been found. There's, there's one piece that was found um, not too long ago. It's about the size of a credit card, a very ancient papyrus piece of the writing of Mark. Um, it's been dated, honestly, about to, to the earliest dating we could date it to now is the early 60s. Um, so we're getting close. We're getting within 30 years, but this book was written 25 years um, after the, the death of Christ. All right. Um, now, so Paul's writings about the historical accounts of Jesus are the first in existence. In this book, Paul gives the very first ever, like I said, accounts of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. So how could Paul be talking about the scriptures? How could he be telling his, his church that Jesus died and, and resurrected in accordance with the scriptures? Um, and what scriptures is he talking about? So um, I'm going to answer this question in a roundabout way. I'm going to go somewhere else first, and we're going to come back here. We're going to venture down a bunny trail. Um, because I also get a lot of questions about why your scriptures? Why not? I mean, there's so many holy books out there. Why don't you, don't you read the Quran alongside your Bible? Why don't you read the Book of Mormon? Or the, and, and people just name um, different kinds of holy books. Why is yours the one? Answer me that question. It's, a very, it's the skeptical question. It's always asked, yes, you're the one who's right, as if there's no truth and nobody can really know that everyone can make it up themselves. And so arrogantly, the question is always asked, why your book and not every other book? All right. Um, there's 66 books in the canon of Scripture. This is what we call the canon of Scripture. The things that were decided at the councils um, were, were um, written by the Old Testament prophets 
um, and the important figures of the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament, all right? Um, of these 66 books, there's 40 different authors, and it was written over a span of 1,500 years. There's books on history, there's books of poetry, there's books on phil- philosophical thinking, there's books on theological thinking, there's books on systematic thinking, all wrapped up in this Bible. If you, made, if you start reading a historic document... And you start reading it, and, and you started making assertions one after another that you found were false, maybe historically, philosophically, existentially, and you keep going farther and farther and farther, and you find systematic contradictions and failures, then you have reason to believe that you cannot really trust that document that you are reading, okay? But if you look at the scriptures disclosed over centuries, what you're going to see is a prophetic schema all the way down to one person over 1,500 years. I would argue maybe 1,800 years. I, th- I think some of the things were actually earlier, like the book of Job, that people give credit for. Um, um, if you see the same story being told before it happened, while it happened, and after it happened, and it's all the same exact story, this prophetic sort of schema, if you will, all the way down to one person who is Jesus, then, then you have to really take this book seriously. And let's go farther into it. Let's talk about this, okay? Let's look at the book of Daniel. Daniel was written 500 years before Jesus. 500 years before Jesus, all right? Now, um, when you study the book of Daniel, you're going to see specifics about this massive prophecy, okay? Um, you're going to read about an empire rising up. He talks about it will be led by a powerful man from the West, um, it's going to trample many nations underfoot. It's suddenly going to be cut off and divided into four. Those four um, will sort of go to war and will eventually emerge into two, and those two empires will blend into one. Now, if you've studied um, ancient Middle Eastern history, um, and you actually go to look at uh, the story of Alexander the Great, you're going to see pretty clearly that if you're a student of the Bible that this is what exactly Daniel was talking about. Alexander the Great um, came from the West, um, He was young, he was cut off in his 20s, but he was a powerful um, leader. He conquered a lot of nations. And he was cut off in his 20s, and his four kingdoms uh, emerged out of this. They were ruled by his four generals that he had leading his armies. Um, And those four turned into two, the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid empires, and those two became the Roman Empire. And now we have the setting in which the Messiah would be born. And this is written about a little later in the book of Daniel. Um, If you compare this with the writings of Zechariah, um, and, and, and Zechariah, you know, he writes things like, uh, they shall look upon him who they have pierced and weep as a mother weeps for her only son. A lot of these books talk about, this, talk about crucifixions and stuff, and the fascinating thing is crucifixion wasn't even invented for 500 years after this, after these books were written. Crucifixion was invented by the Romans in the first century uh, a few decades before Jesus was crucified. And so they're writing about someone with, with nails being going through them and they're being whipped and scourging wasn't invented yet. The cat of nine tails was not invented yet. Um, They're talking about things that hadn't come about yet that he's going to be pierced, um, that a crown of thorns is going to be on his head. It's it's all very fascinating. Actually, if you look at the book of Isaiah, it's filled with these kind of things. It tells the story of Jesus um, born into that setting that Daniel set. Um, and it talks about the virgin birth of Jesus, that there would be a son called God, that he would perform miracles. The Messiah would be preceded by a messenger, uh, John the Baptist, um, that God's salvation would reach the ends of the earth, um, that Jesus was spat upon and beaten, the Messiah would be rejected uh, by his own people, the Jewish people, um, that God's servant would die for our own sins, that God's servant would be silent before his accusers. Remember him standing before Pilate, standing out in front of the people, he says nothing. Um, God's servant would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Wow, that's 
incredibly accurate. Um, and God's servant would be numbered with the transgression, with the transgressors. He was hung on a tree with two other men who were um, basically deserters and murderers set to die, and he was one of the three that were crucified with them. Um, this is kind of why I trust the Bible, and this is why you can trust it too. There's uh, if you actually look at how many of these there are, there are approximately 2,000 prophecies that appear in the pages of the Bible which have already been fulfilled amazingly detailed, in amazingly detailed ways. Um, when you read the Bible, what you see, if you study, um, if, if you study uh, uh, linguistics and you, and you study history and you, and you study philosophy, you see a true story. Immediately, you see a supernatural book. So when you take the miraculous element and you take the historical prophecy and you look into scriptures, what you will see is all of history of the Jewish people pointing to one person who is Jesus, okay? That is why we trust it. Now, that's why we trust the scriptures. That's why we believe the Bible is superior to any other book about God, and that's why we don't bother reading them because we have the story of God here. If we want to know about God, we look to Jesus, and Jesus is found in the Bible, all right? Nothing in history matches it. Jews did not see Jesus in the scriptures before he came. And this is what's so fascinating about this is because Paul's telling them to go back um, and read what happened to Jesus and believe what happened to Jesus in accordance with the scriptures. The, pro- the, the problem is, and the fascinating thing is, the Jews didn't see Jesus in the scriptures until he, they looked backwards after that had happened. Once you go back and you study, you know, they, they just kept reading. After this man, Jesus rose up as the Messiah. They all put their faith in him, and he died, and they all kind of went back to their lives. And then he rose from the dead. Um, a good amount of people saw him. And what happens is the Jews go back, and they start reading the scriptures, and they say, wait a minute, this is exactly what was prophesied. We didn't see it before because it's, it's incredibly difficult to see before it happens. The disciples didn't even believe Jesus was going to die. All right? When all of this happened, the apostles and the disciples simply went back to the text they had always read, and it points out Jesus to them over and over and over. So when Paul says, in accordance with the scriptures, this is what he is talking about, this kind of thing, and it's everywhere. And the Jews came to Jesus by the thousands, and within 50 years of Jesus' life, there was no more Jewish temple anymore. About 70 AD, the Romans completely destroyed it. And Jesus was worshiped in the Christian church from then on. Let's look at verse 5 through 11. So Paul offers them not only this prophetic evidence, but also this tangible evidence here. He writes this, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Uh, Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Um... So he appeared to Cephas, to 12, to James, to 500 other people. Do you know what he's saying here? When he he says, oh, and he appeared to 500 people, most of whom are still alive, you know what he's saying? He's saying, "Um, do you don't believe me? Are you having a hard time believing me in the the, the thing? Do you have have doubts about who Jesus was talking to his church, about the fact that he rose from the dead? And he says, well, there's 500 people walking pretty close to here, walking around, who saw him after the Romans killed him. And the Romans were pretty good at killing people. It's kind of what they did. They didn't fail, all right? Um, Jesus was dead. They saw him die. And then 500 of them who are still walking with us, Paul says, saw him alive. Ask Bob, ask Harry, ask 
Judith. They all saw him. They talked to him. Biblical names. I got them. All right? They're literally everywhere. They're walking around everywhere. They're in this city. They're in the nearby cities. Talk to them. If you have doubts, talk to them. Ask what they saw. All right? And, and this is a fascinating thing. Nobody in that time period, we have, we have 6,000 uh, manuscripts for the New Testament. More than, by the way, more than any other ancient documents. We have more, uh, we, we can prove more proof the, his, the historical accuracy of the Bible than we can Homer's Odyssey, than a lot of things written uh, in the 8th century. There's more manuscripts for this that we found, ancient manuscripts that say, yes, this is what happened, than any other piece of history. Yet people, this is the thing people doubt the most. It's fascinating. Um, um, where was I going with that? Oh yeah, so nobody, with all these manuscripts we have, nobody wrote a book saying, all these people are telling lies. Here you go. We don't have any ancient books where people wrote against the historical things that people were saying. All, all it would have taken was for a couple Jewish rabbis to write, or, 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 or scholars of that day to write about what had happened. Even, even the Roman historians didn't doubt what had happened, all right? None of them even wrote against it. So why does Paul mention these people? There's a really good reason Paul mentions these people. Uh, first person he mentions is Peter. Um, it, well, Cephas, it says. Um, but Cephas is also Peter, Simon Peter. Um, he was the oldest disciple of Jesus, probably by five years or so. Um, he was probably 20, um, and the rest of, his disciple, of the disciples were around like 15 years old. A lot of people think that these were 30-year-old dudes with big beards. Um, they weren't. They were kids. Um, they were young men. And, um, and this is why we always see Peter talking first and most um, a lot of people look at Peter and they say, well, he talks a lot and he really should keep quiet because a lot of things he says are dumb. Well, he has to talk a lot. He's the oldest. It's his job to talk the most. Um, it was the culture of being a Talmudim of a rabbi. Um, even today, if you see a rabbi with all his little Talmudim disciples following him, the oldest one does 90% of the talking. This is how it was. Um, so um, we want to see why it was so important for Jesus to appear to Peter. Now, the scripture, the, the, Paul could, hear, could have just written, he appeared to 500 plus people. He didn't need to name these specific people. The reason he names these people is because each one of these people has a story, and it's fascinating that Jesus would appear to them by themselves at some point. All right? This was done for a very theological reason that Paul wrote this. He wants to tell a story. He wants to go back before um, Jesus was crucified, okay? On the night Jesus was crucified, Peter has the guts to go back when Jesus is undergoing his trial, all right? The scriptures say that Peter's standing around a fire, and there's other people there, probably trying to keep warm, and he says that he could see Jesus. It says this, and, but Jesus' back was turned to him. Um, all right, and so, so his back is turned to Peter, but Peter can see him at, at the fire. Maybe, maybe, maybe Peter's here, and Jesus is over here, and his back is turned. He's in um, a, a, a hall court sort of thing. Um, and a woman comes up and says, hey, weren't you with him? Weren't you one of his disciples? And Peter says, I never saw him. Now, this would be a shocking thing to hear if you knew that this guy was a follower of that rabbi. This would be one of the most offensive things that you could do in that culture because you did not in the least bit want um, to disassociate yourself with your rabbi because all you wanted all your years following him was to be exactly like him, to be him. And for someone to all of a sudden say, I don't, I don't know. Hmm, I don't know him. Tom and Dean are supposed to die with their rabbi. They're so committed to their life and carrying on their message after they die 
that that is the role that they play, and they take an oath when they become a Talmudim of a rabbi that that's what they will do, all right? It's, hu- it's, it's a huge disrespect. And again, he hears you, you were with him, and he says, I never saw the man. Luke 22 says that someone noticed that he was a Galilean, probably by his accent, the way that he talked around the campfire, and he says, you, you're a Galilean, and he says, you're, you're with him, because he's Galilean too. You, you are with him. And he says, he says, I don't know the man that you're talking about. And the third time he says it, um, scriptures say, that, scripture say that, that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Imagine that. One of his Talmudim standing at the campfire. And you're over there and you're talking about how you don't know him. And, and he can hear you. And on the third time you say, I don't know him, he turns and he looks at you. and makes eye contact with you. And it says that Peter broke down and wept. You ever had one of those conversations with your eyes, with somebody that you meet across the room? Something terrible has happened. You hear some news and you're with them and you look at each other. Nothing needs to be said. You know exactly what is being thought. The conversation would go something like this. For four years, I let you walk with me everywhere and you had what it took and you were becoming just like me and now you take an oath that you never knew me? You never knew me? How can you say, how can you take an oath and swear that you never knew me? Peter knew what this meant when he realized his rabbi had heard him. He knew it was all over. No rabbi would take back a student who had turned on his rabbi. And Luke 22 says, and he went out and he wept bitterly. And later on after the resurrection, where do we find him? We find him fishing, which is fascinating because one of the first commands that, that, that the, the, the angel at the tomb gave to the women who found Jesus' tomb empty was, oh, you need to go tell Peter. So Peter probably knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. Of course he knew. A week later or so, we find him fishing. He knows his rabbi's alive, walking around, but it's over. There's nothing he can do. He turned his back on him. And Jesus looks him up, finds him, walks out to the beach. And when he recognizes it as Jesus, he jumps out of the boat and and swims ashore to meet his rabbi because his rabbi had come out to find him again. This is one of the most, we don't see the emotion in in the text there, but it's one of the most, like, orchestra-playing, notebook-feeling kind of movie things, you know? It's, this is huge. It's a big deal, all right? And then he talks to him. He says, do you love me? Do you really love me? Do you really love me? He says it three times, and he says, then feed my sheep. And, and this is fascinating because Jesus was known as their shepherd and he offers him his job back, basically. He says, feed my sheep. You can, you can be with me again. You can, you can have what I'm offering again. You can be like me. Even though you denied me, I'll take you back. And any other teacher, Lord, or even friend or family member, even today, that reacted this way, didn't want to be affiliated with that person. No, 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 that's embarrassing. I, no, I, out of fear for myself, no, I don't, I don't know them. We would never be taken back by anyone on this earth. It's called redemption. And without resurrection, redemption cannot happen. The idea of the resurrection is that this can be brought back. It's not too far gone. It can be brought back. All right? The church in Corinth and the church in Tampa needs to know how Jesus operates. You are never too far gone, ever. No matter how many times you deny him, he will never deny you. All right, James, look at, the, look at, look at what it says about uh, James. He was, um, 
So he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers than most, most of whom were still alive, uh, though some had fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and this is a very fascinating thing. Um, James was the brother of Jesus. Other places in history, he's actually called James the Just. Um, and what is clear from the scriptures is that Jesus, his own family rejected his teachings. They were quite actively hostile towards him, all right? Look at, look at Mark 3.21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for, he were, for, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. His family thought he was crazy. Yeah, my brother thinks he's God. Well, of course you're going to think he's crazy because, well, then what are you? You know, like, so they rejected him, and they, and they were incredibly hostile. They tried to restrain him, hold him back. Um, imagine Joseph and Mary and his brothers and sisters were actually trying to restrain him. My, how the, the roles have turned in this story, all right? John 7, 5, not even his brothers believed in him. None of them really believed uh, who he wa- that believed that he was who he said he was. The story that is actually present in 1 Corinthians 16 of Jesus going to James and appearing to him is an extra-biblical story, um, which means it's, it's that it, the full history of this story is not contained in the Bible but in secular history. And one of the earliest church documents that we have, which did not become part of uh, the canon of scriptures, um, it didn't really survive, it's called The Gospel According to the Hebrews. We have a few fragments of this book here and there, uh, and one of the fragments that we actually have that exists talks about Jesus meeting James. Um, So here, look at some of this text here. Uh, And this is from the Gospel according to the Hebrews, okay? It's not the Bible. Um, Now, the Lord, when he had given the linen cloth unto the servants of the priests, we don't really know what they're referring to, uh, went unto James and appeared to him, for James had sworn that he would not eat bread from that hour wherein he had drunk the Lord's cup until he should see him risen again from among them that sleep. Okay, so... um, Apparently, at some point, James was convinced that Jesus, was his, uh, Jesus, his own brother, was indeed the Messiah and was the Lord, and his pain for rejecting him was apparently so great that he swore, um, he swore that, that I'm not going to eat again, I'm not going to drink, I'm going to starve myself to death unless I have the chance to talk to him and repent for what I've done. He was so torn with remorse for the way that he had treated his brother that he swore he would just starve unless Jesus came to forgive him. And the story goes on that Jesus went to his brother and he said this, my brother, eat thy bread for the son of man has risen from among them that sleep. So Jesus apparently went to his own family who had completely rejected him. And James wanted so bad to repent, to make things right and say, I'm, I'm really sorry. They, they probably had a hand in him being arrested. And he goes to his brother James and says, hey, Water under the bridge. It's blood off the cross. Let's say communion. And forgives him. No amount of rejection or ridicule or pure hatred of Jesus puts us too far out of his reach. He will come to us and he will offer us his love again and again and again. He will hold no grudge and he is nothing like us. Because that is what we do. He doesn't meet us halfway. A lot of people teach that he'll meet you halfway. He won't. He'll come the whole way for you. He will take all of the sins upon himself. And he is there in your face asking you, come to me again. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you've rejected. Just come back. Come back. All right? So the last person that this passage sort of talks about is, uh, is Paul. Um, and and there's a word that Paul uses to describe himself. He says, and, and he appeared to me last of all, um, 
And, and, and he calls himself untimely born, this word, uh, ekatroma, and uh, untimely born. Now, um, this, is, this was a difficult word to translate if you read a lot of uh, documentary, uh, documentaries, um, commentaries. Um, on this, on this, this word, you're going to see it translated a lot of different ways because one of the main ways that we find the meanings of these ancient Greek words is to look at other documents, how they were, um, how the word was used. And this word was used sort of vastly, if you will. Um, the ESV translates it untimely born. Um, some of the, they're, they're, and, and some have actually translated this, this word as, uh, as premature birth, if you will. Now, if this is the right translation, premature birth, untimely born is very similar. Um, it basically means that he believes he didn't come to Jesus, but, but he, cause, and, and he didn't have the, the change of mind. He didn't, basically, he didn't take the journey that everyone else took. He didn't come to the realization that, that God loves him. He was walking down a road, um, living a life of persecuting other people, um, killing Christians, and God appeared, knocked him off his donkey, and said, you're mine now. Yeah, he never had the journey we had. Untimely born, premature birth. He says, yeah, all of a sudden, all of a sudden I was, I was born again. All right, it's, it's, it's crazy, okay? Now, there's a couple other translations, and one of them is, uh, it's kind of iffy, um, but I actually saw this one used most of all. This word is actually translated as an, an abortion. Um, there's three or four different commentaries had this word, and, and if this is the translation, it basically means um, that the life he lived was so terrible that God suddenly ended the path that he was on and took him. So there's all kinds of, he, whatever it is, he was being very degrading of himself about who he was and how God saved him. He did not have that story where, you know, he was repentant and he came to realization and the tears in the morning and, and the coming and to, to, to Jesus and saying, Lord, I repent. God knocked him off his, his donkey camel, his donkey, and said, hey, here I am, the one you've been persecuting. All of a sudden, he knows he's real he knows that he's the Lord, and he changes everything, all right? So, so Paul has this very, very low, humble view of himself. Whatever the full meaning is here, we know um, that, that Paul never thought highly of himself. He was a Pharisee and a rabbi. He dedicated his life to rounding up Christians and dragging Christians and their families out of their houses and stoning them right there in front of their own houses, men, women, and their children, all together while all the Pharisees stood around. Um, he's mentioned in the book of Acts as one who held the coats because he was in charge. He held the coats for all the Pharisees who were trying to impress him by how many Christians they could kill out in front of their own houses. Um, and then suddenly Jesus appears to him as he traveling to Damascus. And from that moment on, he knew how much love God had for him. Uh, and and, and that, that he would save someone so terrible, that he would love someone who had hated him so much, that he would offer salvation to someone who was in the same category basically as Adolf Hitler. He was committing genocide. Tells you about the love God has for the people that we hate the most in our histories. God loved them. God wanted nothing more for them to become his. Yes, God's desire is always to save people, no matter how terrible they are, no matter how many atrocities they've committed, no matter how much they have hated him with the scriptures or Christians themselves. And, and, and this alone, this, this idea that no matter how much people hate God, God loves them, this idea should change how we respond to people and how we treat people who hate and disagree with what we are doing. 
someone comes to you and they hate you, they hate what you stand for, they hate the word that you think is holy, they hate your Jesus, they hate your God, they hate the idea that, that you even believe in a God and they don't believe there's any God at all. Um, this should change the way we respond to them. Not in some huge argumentative kind of defensive way, out of love. You go to them and say, well, I just want you to know how much Jesus loves you. I, I, I would love to walk you through a study of the scripture and, and, and talk to them in a very loving way, the same way Jesus went to all those who had rejected him and appeared to them, offered them his forgiveness and his communion. And then Paul writes this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This is the reason that Paul believes everything is because of the love that, that God showed to him. So, if you are here this morning and you have hated Christians, and you have hated the idea of religion, of God, of Jesus, of, of all this, um, I want you to know, first off, that you're in good company. A lot of us have been there. A lot of us have felt the hatred that you feel. Um, and, and many of us have been in the same boat. Many of us have been hostile towards the idea of, of God and the scriptures. And in fact, many of the writers of the scriptures were actually people just like you. They were against God, but then they were exposed to the love of God, and, and they became his greatest servants. So all we have to offer you really at this moment is love hoping that you will feel it. Don't be ashamed about the path that you've been on. Be repentant of it and bring it to God. Maybe spend some time with us in our house churches and our groups um, and, and keep joining us here. I, I, think we're fine. I think you'll find that we're not what you think we are. Maybe you're here today and you have a past full of completely shameful things that you've been carrying around your whole life up until this very day and you've been trying to better yourself so that you can get right with God. You've been trying to do better and make yourself better so that you can come to God and finally become, I want you to know that's backwards. That's not how it's done. Jesus died to make you right with God, and you need to realize that. Jesus died to make you right with God. Jesus is not finished with the deadest of human beings, and, and just as Jesus was raised from the dead, there's no reason for you to carry your cross around. God is asking you, put the cross down and look at the cross that he carried. There's no reason for you to hang on that cross. All right? Come to Christ like you are, and your sins are forgiven. Just repent of them. The change is called sanctification. It happens over a very, very, very long time. And we are a church full of people, a room full of people that even if we have come to Christ, we still struggle with our sins that we had. Um, and we are being made better and better and better as we follow Christ. It's called sanctification. It's a good thing. It's an important thing. Don't expect that you're going to come to Christ and everything is just going to be all honky-dory and great. You're still going to have these, these painful things that you're carrying around, and I, I hope that you can throw them off over time, but we are here for the journey with you. And lastly, maybe you're here today, and there's someone that you have given up on. You're on the other side. Someone has turned their back on you, done something terrible to you, and you've just written them off, you've given up on them, there's no hope that they're going to come back. Whoever it is, whatever they have done, there's three people you need to consider. Peter, James, and Paul. Peter turned on his closest friend at his worst hour so that his reputation could stay intact. A terrible thing to do. And Jesus went to him and forgave him. James mocked his brother his entire life and then wanted to reconcile after he was dead. 
but he felt like he couldn't. And Jesus made that possible. Consider Paul, who hated, like you, uh, who hated people like you so much that he would round them up as families and kill them together. And Jesus forgave them. The whole idea of resurrection is that even when somebody's too, too, too far gone, they can be brought back. They can come back. And if we don't recognize this and bring this into play into our lives, if we just declare people dead and gone, they're out of my life, if you're not willing to practice this resurrection on your own, then really the resurrection of Jesus doesn't mean for you what it should. All right, it comes into play in our, own very, in our very own lives. And lastly, consider Jesus, who after dying at the hands of all these people's atrocities and sins, he went to see them so that they would know that tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. And if there's anything I could leave you with today, it's that statement. Tomorrow does not have to be like today because resurrection is possible. Tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what you're carrying around. I don't know what... Um, what pains and suffering that you, are, that you have that's all you can focus on. I don't know if you have bad habits in your life that you just want to kick. I don't know if, if there's things that your family is struggling with together, but all I want you to know is tomorrow doesn't have to be like that. Tomorrow can be different. Resurrection is possible. Jesus proved that to us. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about resurrection as a historical event. We're going to talk about the afterlife, we're going to talk about uh, resurrection of us and our bodies in the future. Um, I'm going to try to cover a lot of things because I think a lot of us have um, pretty unorthodox um, interpretations of what exactly happens after you die. So, we're going to talk about that. Um, right now, we're going to take communion, though. Communion is an important part of our gathering. Um, uh, because it's a reminder every week that we are to take the gospel down inside of us and, and contemplate what it means for us. And so we take some bread, and we, it, it represents the body of Christ. We dip it in a glass of wine. It represents the blood of Christ. And um, we speak to Jesus, and, and we say, Jesus, we do this to remember what you did for us. And we take it down inside of us. We liken ourselves to Jesus. And, um, and we thank him for what he did. And we lay our sins up in there. If you need to repent before, you, before uh, you take communion, please do that. If you need to make something right with somebody, go make it right with them right now. Resurrect that maybe relationship back as, as much as you can and then come take communion. If there's some of you that, uh, that need prayer, um, that need to uh, um, just talk to somebody about God, uh, we'll have some elders over here um, on, by either door over here. And so you're welcome to come pray with them. And... Um, so uh, let's take communion. Father, we love you. You're a good, wonderful God. And um, it's very humbling to gather with, with all my brothers and sisters here. We all know that we carry around sins that, that um, should be responsible for separating us from you for all of eternity. And when you rose from the dead, you came right to us and you said, now here's what I'm offering you. I'm offering you what I have, which is the resurrection. I want to rebuild your life. I want to rebuild your soul. I want to rebuild your mind. And when this is all said and done, I want to rebuild your body. And we know that if we follow you here, we will follow you in your eternal kingdom forever. And that's what we focus on. That's the hope that we have. And even more so, you let us take part in your salvation 
of this world. You give us your hands and your feet to do your work. All of this is not what we deserve. We love you, Father. Be with us now as we take communion. Bring things to our heart that we need to confess. And let us do it. Let us get right with you and each other. Thank you, God. In your name, amen.